This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. That's a good way to start the podcast with <laughs> coughing. That's us, the cough boys, the sick boys. Hey, everybody! This is overdue. A podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name's Craig. <laughs> no, don't. People sometimes don't know who's who. My name's Craig. Your name's <laughs> my Andrew. Name, my name's Andrew. We're sick. We're both. We've both been sick all week. Yeah. And all weekend. It's it's a weird sick. You know, there's. It's hard to know if it's flu. It's hard to know if it's a cold. It's I felt bad on Monday and then pretty good on Tuesday and then steadily worse until yesterday and now a little bit better again today, I think. I woke up in the middle of the night still under the effects of NyQuil, so I'm not sure what my body was doing. If it was trying to teach me a lesson, I'm unclear. I don't, anyway, don't get sick. Just like take care of yourselves and your people. Just like a PSA from us at Overdue to you: don't get sick. Because if you, hey, maybe don't get sick. Hey, maybe this time don't get sick. Because if we were super sick, we couldn't bring you this podcast, which is about books, where one of us reads a book and the other person helps them talk about it. And say so we're just a little sick, which means we're gonna do it, but we're gonna do it weird and bad. The probably. show must go on. So this <laughs> week we are talking about the book "Salvage the Bones" by Jesmyn Ward as mm-hmm. a Patreon recommendation from Elisa. Thank you, Elisa. Um, and I had not heard of this book before, but upon, yeah, her like, her work seems to be like critically well received. Like she wins an award basically every time she releases mm-hmm, anything. Mm-hmm. Um, this won a National Book Award in 2011 and an Alex Award in 2012. Yeah, the um, Alex Awards most, are cool um, yeah. because there are books that resonate with like teens, but they're intended with for, Alex for. <laughs> But they're intended for adults, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool. Sorry, you were going to say um, her other book. No, I was just going to say, and then she won a National Book Award for her most recent novel, Sing Unburied Sing, which came out uh, last year in 2017. Yes, yes. And she got a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2017 as well. So. Yeah, she's pretty accomplished for like, as she will admit in, in interviews that it is surprising how many you know people know about her books, like when she got the first... Uh, National Book Award. She was pleasantly surprised because she knew that people, like critics, liked it, but didn't really know how many other people were. Because well, she of had, it. she apparently had some trouble getting her first book yeah, published. True. There was like a three-year journey between finishing it and finding someone to publish it. And she'd almost given up on on writing at all at that point. But then it was published, and then um, and then it, it went from there. Obviously, she's published other stuff since then. So Yeah, she was born in 1977. Her uh, family's from Mississippi. Uh, she got a she got her degrees from Stanford and then also got an MFA from Michigan. She's taught at a couple different universities. Um, but the journey to this book and the journey to her first book, uh, she was in Mississippi when Hurricane Katrina hit. And that'll inform this book that we talk about today. Um, 
and she tells a story about uh, her family like living in their home and the house was flooded and they went up to like the attic to try and like get above water but that wasn't going to work and then you could just get trapped up there um, so they made it out and then were like on some family's land um, and they did not take her family in now she is uh a black woman and this was a white family and she has said that she presumes that there was perhaps racial uh motives for why those people did not take her in um and that kind of informs this book uh and the the communities that she's writing about and what she wanted to write about going into salvage the bones um but yeah that happened and then in, it wasn't until 2008 that her first book got published, as you said, Andrew, and she said it took a, a while for her to actually kind of get past the writer's block that was a mix of just general frustration and, I think, uh, recovery from Katrina and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and so I, I think a lot, most of her books are are about either directly or, like, tangentially about being poor and black in the American South. Um, this one, Salvage the Bones, is the one that deals with Katrina the most directly. Yeah, I think yeah. is correct. And she says um, <clears throat> there's an interview she did with the with the Paris Review where she talks a lot about this book in particular. Um, the interviewer asks, "Why did you want to write about Hurricane Katrina?" And she says uh, that she I, I lived through it. It was terrifying, and I needed to write about that. I was also angry at the people who blame survivors for staying and for choosing to return to the Mississippi Gulf Coast after the storm. Finally, I wrote about the storm because I was dissatisfied with the way it had receded from the public consciousness. So that um, gets at a couple things. One, like there were a lot of people who stayed in New Orleans, not because necessarily they were being like obstinate or stupid or yeah like inviting calamity or whatever but like that was the only place they had to to be like it's where their entire lives were and all their people and their stuff and yeah and that's kind of how this book portrays some of those like it it's never like an option that they're gonna that the characters are gonna go far it's not like a it's just, this is what they have to do. This is where they live. This is, yeah, you know. Um. And then the the second bit about um the the storm receding from the public consciousness, like yeah, like number one, like I've we've you went to New Orleans with us. Like yeah. there's a group of us from like friends from college who go periodically, and I've been a few times, and I know that like in the early 2010s, like they were like, if you went on a tour or if you talk to people who, who lived down there, like they would tell you, you know, it took a full decade for tourism to kind of come back to the levels that it had been before. So yes. the city was suffering for a long time after the storm. And it also speaks to just how the, the news media covers storms. Like I think it, it does a pretty okay job for the first couple of weeks, like right after it happens, and then, like the, the you know the news gets old and the cameras leave and you know people still need just as much or more help as they did before, but it's it's harder to get attention. I think when and we're seeing that now, especially in the response to Puerto Rico, which was yeah. insufficient to start with, and that has only gotten worse as it's you know as as time has passed. Yeah, I was even just thinking about the 2017 hurricane season as I was reading this book and like trying to even go back and get a clear timeline in my head was kind of difficult because a it was a a very destructive season with multiple storms and b just yeah the coverage and the way that folks are 
telling stories about it can get really confusing, especially after people stop telling stories about it. You know, um, yeah. it's it's pretty tough. Um, yeah. And then then one of the other things that that people, I guess, remember with Katrina, like nationally, is the federal government was criticized for its response to the storm. Like it, it was found that um, some cost cutting with the levy system. Mm, sure was uh was partially at fault for a lot of the flooding and then um the response from uh the George W Bush administration was uh widely criticized as as insufficient and politically like approval rating wise his presidency this happened like fairly early in his second term yeah yeah and his presidency never really recovered from from his response to this which is it's it's interesting to see like interesting in a really awful way to see the the to compare and contrast Katrina with with um, the response to the Maria storms that happened this Harvey, year yeah. in, in Puerto Rico and and yeah it's kind of sucks yeah it's pretty bad and and what's I'll just close before we take our break this book and uh, Ward's other work it's dealing more with a rural Gulf Coast uh, than the you know the actually New Orleans and stuff like that so it was it's really interesting just to be in that world and think about it and think about the way that a storm impacts communities like that that are not getting as much coverage right because there's not as much of an infrastructure for national news to even be there in the first place right. so well it, and 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 Katrina like the the water from the storm went as much as I believe 12 miles yeah, inland yeah. Mm-hmm. in some places and it didn't just hit New Orleans, it hit, you know, it hit Florida, it hit but the Bahamas, Cuba, um, wider Louisiana, Mississippi. Like it did a lot of damage in a lot of places. Yeah. So we'll talk about that some more after we take a quick break and get into the book proper. Craig, I like websites. How do you feel about websites? I think they're pretty great. Help me make one, please. Uh- all right, Squarespace, use it. Make a website. What? Um, <laughs> Squarespace can help you create a beautiful website to turn your cool idea into a new website. Um, also, you can showcase your work, blog, or publish content and sell products and services of all kinds. Um, they help you do this by giving you beautiful templates created by wor- world-class designers. Um, and they give you e-commerce functionality. You never have to patch anything. Everything is optimized for both mobile browsers and desktop browsers right out of the box. And uh, they got built-in search engine optimization and free and secure hosting. So if you want, if any of that sounds good to you, which it should, because you like websites, you're a person about the internet, um, you should go to squarespace.com, get a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. Offer code overdue. Save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That sounds great, Andrew. But what if I want serialized fiction? I'm going to go well, to Serial those two things. <laughs> those two things seems like you could do both. Great. Well, I'm going to head over to our good friends at Serial Box, also supporting the show this week. Um, they have been called the HBO of reading. By National Public Radio, <laughs> and they bring you gripping stories. We're we're like the stars of reading. I think. <laughs> we are, <laughs> or the Cinemax of reading. Yeah, um, 
racy. Ooh, by uh, they have stories written by best-selling and award-winning teams of writers, kind of like a TV show's writers' room, and they have new episodes every week. You can read or listen to all the serials at no extra cost, and the app lets you kind of switch back and forth. You know, if you're on the train and you want to read, but then you're walking and you want to listen, that totally works. Uh, they've got shows like False Idols coming up soon, which is a show about an FBI linguist uh, deep undercover in the Middle East. Uh, and yeah, they've got most of those episodes take about 40 minutes to read or listen to. Um, and you can kind of subscribe to a whole one or, or just get one episode and then try it out. And overdue listeners can get a discount on any first season of a Serial Box series. So you head to SerialBox.com and enter the promo code OVERDUE18. That's the numbers 1-8. So you go to SerialBox, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. And the code is OVERDUE18. Check it out. Tell me about this book. I'll tell you about this book. You mean Salvage the Bones <laughs> okay. by Jasmine Ward? That book? Yeah, sal- Salvage Them Bones for me. Great. So the bones of this book are the 12 days prior to the arrival of Hurricane Katrina. Each chapter is a different day. And in the life of the Batiste family, which lives in a fictional rural Mississippi uh, community called Bois Sauvage, uh, B-O-I-S... S-A-U-V-A-G-E. And I think that it's been featured in um, other books by Ward and also is modeled on her hometown of Delisle, Mississippi. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. It reminds me kind of, and she's spoken about being a Southern writer and you're always dealing with like Faulkner is the big American Southern writer. And he has like his own fictional community down there. I don't remember what it's called, but like... Now that I think about it, it is fitting. It is in the fitting of Southern, you know, writers in the tradition thereof to have this kind of community that her books could be set in. Yeah, um, though I mean, a lot of other writers do that too. No, like no, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's the, not the whole view askew universe. Yeah. <laughs> the what? The Kevin Smith thing. Oh, okay. I did, the view askew universe. Is that a thing? Yeah, look it up. Read a book, <laughs> like a different book. <laughs> Let's talk about. Bois Sauvage. Bois Sauvage. Right. Uh, the Batiste family lives uh, on a land that they refer to as the Pit. Um, the main character, Esch, E-S-C-H, um, made my autocorrect go crazy for my notes. Um, the Her grandparents owned like 15 acres in this community, and uh, they let like other guys that her grandparent that her grandfather was working with like come in and mine the land for clay to make like other foundations for homes and bricks and Mm -hmm. whatnot so the the land has kind of been dug out and there's this artificial like man-made cliff that helped create a pond that's like filled in with this creek um and it's got this interesting quality of like while i was reading the book i was never quite sure how big the landscape was it kind of like allowed ward to okay well here's a forest where i need a forest here's a lake where i need the characters to go into this lake um on the one hand it all feels very like lived in and real but on the other hand it has a kind of mythic quality that jives with how the storm is presented and some other illusions in the book um so the batiste family as we meet them 
uh, are Esh, who's the main character. She's a teenager. I think she's 15 or 16 years old. She has uh, three brothers, Randall, Skeeta, and Junior. Um, and Junior's the youngest. He's like six or seven, and the other two are, I think, just like a year or two older than her. Mm-hmm. And we meet them in this opening chapter where Skeeta's Pitbull China, uh, I think named because she's like all white, like fine China, I think. Ah, okay. Um, She is giving birth to puppies. It's the first time that she's had puppies. She's like this prized uh, Pitbull of Skeeta's. He's had a couple before and then they die uh, because they're not as strong as she is. And this is the first one that he's had that's really become like a really good fighting dog. And uh, he loves her a bunch. And so as this dog is giving birth, uh, Esh is kind of telling us a little bit about uh, her mom who passed away giving birth to Junior. And we learn like a little bit about the hierarchy of the family. And uh, I think their dad mostly makes money like selling scrap and he is prepping almost like in a in like a biblical Noah way for the storm like he knows it's hurricane season he knows that there's probably a storm coming Katrina itself has not been named yet at this point um, or at least like said that that's the next the big storm that's coming like at what point are they even sort of aware that it is coming for them? Because I know in the early stage, you know, while it's still a tropical storm or whatever hanging out over the ocean, it can be difficult to know exactly what track it's taking until it's a little bit closer. Yeah, so he is <clears throat> imagining the worst case scenario. Uh, he's referred to as Daddy. I think his name might be Claude, but the, all the characters refer to him as Daddy. Um, so the father is... Uh, He's prepping for the worst. He was alive in 1969 when Hurricane Camille came through and was like super deadly in that region. And there, everyone else is like, eh, I mean, there was a bad one like a decade ago, but it'll be fine. It'll just kind of bounce off. It'll hit Florida and then go the other way. Um, it's actually, there's a good passage. It's summer, and when it's summer, there's always a hurricane coming or leaving here. Each pushes its way through the flat gulf to the 26-mile man-made Mississippi beach, where they knock against the old summer mansions with their slave galleys turned guest houses before running over the bayou through the pines to lose wind, drip rain, and die in the north. Uh, and that's... So it's like It's like bad, but it's not bad in a way that alters anybody's life in a meaningful way. Yeah, and so it creates this expectation that he's really the only one worried that this is going to be a big one. And he knows that like the different tropical depressions could easily create a big one, but they don't they just don't know which one it'll be yet. And the kids in the family are just kind of living their lives. They've each got different concerns. Um and as kids do as kids do uh and it's really about the the arc of the book is them obviously kind of coming together and having to deal with the storm as it becomes real but the backdrop is daddy preparing for this storm it's not really the main thrust of the book um it becomes part of the climax because it's freaking hurricane katrina but it is not <laughs> it is not like about how you prepare prepare or, or something like that if that makes sure. sense mm-hmm. um so i'll try to give you like a quick little summary of each character because the book really is about their relationships to one another and what they do and don't do for one another so esh is as i said she's like 15 she 
uh, is the only girl in the family. She kind of takes after her mother, like both physically and in temperament. Um, she says that one of the few things that she's good at is sex. And she started having sex like a couple years prior to the events of the book. Okay. And she describes it sort of transactionally. Like she is doing it because the other because the boys in the community want it. She's very detached from herself as she's doing it. Um, she describes it, as, she's really into Greek myth, and the book references the Medea myth in particular a lot uh, okay. throughout the book. We'll get back to why. Um, but Esh uh, kind of says that when she's like with a boy, she gets to kind of feel like one of these characters from the myths, be it Eurydice or Persephone or whoever, Um but that it's not lasting, and, and it kind of goes away. Except there's one boy named Manny who is a friend of her brother's, Randall. And when she first sees him in the book, um, he's like talking outside. She sees him out through the window, and she says, to, and it's all like first person, I think the book is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says to the reader, seeing him broke the cocoon of my rib cage and my heart unfurled to fly. So every time she sees Manny, it is this mythic love that she can't fight, which both jives with just kind of like teenage romance, right? Where right. you feel it and there's nothing else like it because you've never felt it before. And all the other ones were different, but this one's real. Uh, and it, it always has a physical quality for her and a like almost permanent quality. Um, and so she's had sex with Manny a couple times and her story in the book is like trying to make that relationship real, even as he is avoiding her. Like he is often described as not looking at her. Um, the first time you see them have sex, like he doesn't kiss her. He's not like... He's not into it as a relationship. He sure. definitely has another girl that that gets seen with him a lot. And a few chapters in, she realizes that she is pregnant. Um, oh, boy. And he's the, he's the only person that she's had sex with in the last five months. So it's definitely his. Um, and so from then on, like, she is trying to... Uh, get along with her brothers and her brothers have some of you know have some stuff that they need to do in the book and like how she can help them and whether or not she can help them is kind of dictated by her relationship with her body as it's changing mm-hmm. um as she is trying to hide things like morning sickness or you know needing to use the bathroom um and it, well, and, and and I'm I'm assuming that for like like maybe cultural reasons or practical reasons that abortion is never presented as an option there's like, a, is that is it ever um well first she never really talks <clears throat> to anybody about it so there's no sure. one who is going to be like hey you should do this there no, but is you're a, like in her head mostly yes, right yeah okay, there's so. a there's a passage that she describes like hearing other girls at school talk about what you could do so she does think about it um she thinks about like oh what is the thing you know do, is there a certain type of medicine that i would if i took a whole bunch of contraception at once maybe that would do it oh if i drank this thing that's toxic to my body oh if i uh like hit myself really hard with something in the stomach um but she, that passes after about a chapter okay. um yeah, I'm, I'm just always curious i'm on the other podcast i do appointment television we talk about um how 
how the question of abortion is handled in accidental pregnancy storylines. And it's always kind of just because of the way that, that babies are used to like mark progress on TV shows and things. So I'm always curious in fiction how it's how it's handled. Yeah. And, and the the book is a lot about motherhood in some ways. Like it's it's telling that she doesn't have a mother with her. Uh, to go through this and it's it's even described once that she thinks sometimes her dad doesn't even think of her as a daughter like they all share clothes so she just wears like kind of baggy boy clothes all the time and she's not a tomboy but her dad doesn't really differentiate so there is this sense that she just doesn't have anyone to even confide in about this kind of stuff Um, and because the book is happening on such a compressed time scale I think if it were uh, happening over the course of months maybe like that question would come up again but in the just under two weeks that the book takes place like she has a day yeah, that's where not a lot of the yeah. lot of time in the scale of a pregnancy yeah she's like thinking she thinks about it and then her feelings for manny kind of push her to be like but what if what if this worked like what what if this happened um so that's so it's, it's kind of it's interesting that motherhood comes up and maybe this will give you a toehold to talk about some of the Greek myth stuff. But yeah. um, mm-hmm. Medea is known for like she partners up with Jason of Jason and the Argonauts fame and she helps him do all the stuff and get that golden fleece, that good, good fleece. <laughs> and then they get that like she helps him on the condition that that he marry her and, and take her away. And he does. But then he goes and gets married to someone else, and then Medea kills all of their children. Yeah. And so that is how that myth goes. So I don't know. Yeah, so Medea crops up. that integrated into this whole thing? Medea is an interesting character in this book because... So we are introduced to Greek myth through Esh's interest in just school and reading. We don't see her ever at school. Um the book is pretty confined to to where the family members go, um, and it's it's all taking place in the late summer, obviously. So they're they're not in school, right? But she is reading Edith Hamilton's mythology, which is the book that many of us encounter, uh, you know, academic study of Greek myths in high school. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of she's fascinated by it, and she's stuck on this Medea myth because she keeps referencing it vis a vis her love for Manny. Uh, and that it it's maybe gonna turn violent at some point. Like later in the book, she does tell him that she's pregnant, and uh, or that she you know wants to have it, etc. And uh, she ends up having like beating him up, <laughs> like and geez. like it's it's kind of when That's she. That's not the direction I expected. No, that to go. <laughs> uh, there is a there's before that. Um, they have sex another time, and that's when he realizes that she's pregnant, and he rejects her. Uh, and so then the next time they see each other, she beats him up a little bit. Wait, how um, does that? Wait, how does that work? How does he realize? Oh, it's it's this interesting uh, section. So they're having this is later in the book. I'm jumping ahead, but this is her plot line, so we'll focus on that. Um, they're having sex in a like at the school where Randall is playing in a basketball game, and they're in the bathroom. And she keeps trying to get him to look at her. And it's this whole refrain throughout the book that she really just wants him to really see her. And even during the act of having sex, she is like trying to get his eyes on hers. And as he is um, having sex with her, he can feel that she, that her stomach is different and that uh, it is not 
empty for lack of a better word that they're like it is tougher it is not rebounding the way that just your stomach would if you did not have a growing thing inside you you know all right i'm not mm, okay it's she i'm not i i don't know how much i buy someone being able to divine that that way but sure well and it's and perhaps in the in I guess the, it depends on when in the pregnancy we are, and yeah, yeah, she doesn't. She's not even quite sure where she is in the pregnancy. So the way this is presented in the book is it's a culmination of things. Like it's not just that he touches her stomach and is like, "Oh man, you're pregnant." He, I'll, I'll just read you the passage. He looks down okay. and he looks down and back up eye to eye. All I have ever wanted here. He is looking. He is seeing me, and his hands are coming around to feel the honeydew curve, the swell that is more than swell, the fat that is not fat, the budding baby, and his eyes are so black they are all black, and they are a night without stars. All I have ever wanted. He knows. So it's this culmination of both really probably if you were to like shoot it as a movie, you would get a shot of like her face almost like silently telling him what she is experiencing and feeling sure. yeah, and, yeah. and him having that moment of realization. Um, okay. So then later at, she confronts him uh, when he's on their uh, around their house uh, and she kind of renounces him. And beats him up a little bit, which is a little bit Medea. Uh, but the other Medea thing that there are two other strains where she factors in. One is just the storm Katrina um, as it becomes a, a literal force in the novel um, is described using some of the same language as, you know, being this violent mother that is like rending through this community. Um, and it's helpful to have like a myth to describe that type of violence. Sure. But then also Skeeta's dog, China, is is probably the most literal rendition of Medea in the book. So Skeeta has this pit bull, as I mentioned, and she's got these puppies that she had with another big, strong pit bull um, named Kilo. And China is like a really amazing fighter, but it's interesting that now she has these puppies to care for. And... She, it's like, how does she transition from being this, like, fighting pit dog to actually having a thing to care for? Again, because of the time compression, you don't really see her learn too much about it. Skeeter, Skeeter, excuse me, has to, like, teach her to care for them at times. Um, and he is at one point concerned that they're going to get sick and have this virus. Uh, and while she is, like possibly feeling the effects of the immunization that he gives her she uh -huh. likes attacks her own puppies and like kills one of them hmm. um so she is like a, an imperfect violent mother figure and she actually functions as a great symbol for just violence in the book um a lot of times having set up this dog and and given the reader a real clear picture of what she is and what she's capable of uh ward then can just deploy like China as a simile for like strength or for violence. It's kind sure. of, a, it's really deft how she does that. Mm -hmm. um, but Skeeta's whole story with this dog uh, that I want to talk about, because it's probably the, the plot that has the most like things that happen um, is that he's got this dog. He's got these puppies. He is planning to make money off of these puppies. And later in the book, you, when he is trying to convince his brother Randall to help him, uh, steal some medicine for them. He 
tells Randall that he's going to use the money from some of these puppies to pay for Randall to go to basketball camp. And Randall is this kind of star high school basketball player, but he there's like a game he's going to play in where only one of the players is going to get noticed for this scholarship. And if mm-hmm. he doesn't get picked for this scholarship, there's no way he's going to get to go to camp where a college scout will see him. So the Skeeta is like, he's doing a, ostensibly a good thing for his brother if he follows through on it, but he does fight with everyone and kind of recedes from the family as this storm is coming to care for his dog. And he is the type of character that kind of becomes obsessed with a thing, even as everyone around him is going like, yo, we got bigger fish to fry. Right. Um, so they get, he like, he's like building a kennel for his dogs instead of helping their dad, like tear down other wood and find planks to put over windows and stuff like that. Um, there's another house on their property that is a little dilapidated and broken down that belonged to their grandparents. And he is like ripping linoleum out of it to build a floor for them because there's like a virus in the ground. It's like, have you ever heard of parvo, Andrew? No, what is parvo? It's, I think it's parvo virus or parvo. I'm just going to make sure I get the medical name here. Canine parvo virus. It's possible that I have like heard of it and I don't know it by that name. So tell me what this, tell me what this is. It is a viral infection that can like kill dogs by, you know, just sending their body into shock and apparently originated in cats, which I think is like Man, some karmic that's the nuts. Ultimate. <laughs> you chase us. We're going to develop the ultimate like, biological. Weapon. I know. It's like feline bio warfare. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so uh, he's concerned. One of the puppies takes sick and he is concerned that it has parvo. So he has to, he actually like takes it out into the woods and kills it. Uh, it's like a whole chapter where they like have this like campfire in the woods where he kills this puppy in like a way that's sort of ritualized and then they have to like burn all their clothes so that the par- if the virus got on their clothes it doesn't kill the other dogs um if you're sensitive to the dog violence like read this like book murder just, of puppies just yeah. be careful with it um and then so then the other scheme that i alluded to is then he hatches this whole plot where they're gonna go to this white family's house where that has like cows and stuff. And he's fairly convinced that they have, um, that they have like medicine that they would give their cows for this kind of stuff. And so there's this whole scheme where he's going to break into their barn and steal some of this medicine. And he almost gets caught because Esh, uh, is like, has to go and pee while she's on watch. Cause her body is like not in her control. Sure. Yeah. Um, and he gets it, and, and then he, like, he does manage to give it to his dogs, but there's, like, a scary moment where you think that she is, like, not taking to the medicine well, and she might die. Um, and then that plot line kind of culminates in uh, when the storm comes, and it's pretty terrifying. Um, you know, they get, like... I did not know this. This is a thing that I am surprised, not surprised happens, but certainly didn't know it. Like they get a phone call just from the emergency department. That's like a recorded message to tell them about the mandatory evacuation. Uh, 
which reads, Mandatory evacuation. Hurricane making landfall tomorrow. If you choose to stay in your home and have not evacuated by this time, we are not responsible. You have been warned. And these could be the consequences of your actions. And then there's like a list. And she says, I don't know if, if the list says this, but this is what it feels like. You can die. Okay. Which is a very ominous phone call to get, I would think. And they've gotten it before, right? As we said, like they're not always necessarily treating it like the big one. Um, but there's a couple like news reports scattered throughout the book where obviously the dad is getting more and more worried. And the family is like they're in their house. The dad was injured earlier in the book with a tractor accident. So he's like at a commission and they have to escape to their attic because the flood is coming up from the creek. And now the pit that is below like... I don't know that it's technically below sea level, but it is this depressed plot of land. The water is flooding in and it, you know, is making their house slide off its foundation. Uh And they have to escape into the storm to make it to the, the higher ground where the grandparents house is. And Skeeta is trying to save his dog while he's doing it. And he ultimately lets the dog go in the storm because he has to dive in and save Esh. And so he has this redemptive moment where he abandons the thing that he's been caring about the entire book to save his sister. Right. Because uh, her dad instinctively pushed her when, like, Skeeta's, like, trying to pull her with him. And he's upset that sh- that uh, about what Skeeta's doing. And Skeeta yells that she's pregnant. And that's when they learn that she's pregnant. Um Jeez. And he like. And so it, wait, does he only does he save her primarily because she's pregnant? Uh, or like it's it's twofold. It's twofold because okay. in the in the storm she is like also carrying a bucket that has the puppies in it, and the dad thinks that Skeeta's only trying to save her because she's carrying the puppies, and he's like, okay. Skeeta, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And Skeeta yells that she's pregnant, and the dad who's been holding on to Esh, uh, like instinctively gets really mad and just pushes her and she kind of falls into the water. Sure. So Skeeta has to go in and save her, which causes him to let go of his dog. Um, And they survive. They all make it. They're huddled in this attic uh, after the storm. Um, And then they head back into, they head into their like community down the road and there's this character, Big Henry, who I haven't really talked about. Big Henry. Big Henry. Which is a good name. He's one of Randall's friends. And I think he and uh, Esh have slept together before. And there's always like, he's always kind of looking at her. And the vibe I got was that you're always kind of waiting for it to turn bad. Like, he sure. seems like a nice guy and he does help them out. He like gives them rides in his car when he needs to and stuff. But I was always waiting for him to kind of flip over and, and make a move that was inappropriate or, or something. Sure. And he actually turns out to be like a really generous, nice guy. And like, it's just him and his mom and his house. So he lets them all stay with him because their entire house is flooded. Right. And in the moment, it feels a little unbelievable. Like as the reader, I was like, "Really, Big Henry? This is okay." Did you really have a heart of gold all along, Big Henry? And, and it felt, upon reflection, after I was finished with the book, I was like, "That feels like the same type of disbelief 
when you are in need and someone gives you someone is generous enough to give you the thing you need. Yeah, like, I mean like if there's if there's ever a thing to like change someone's outlook vis-a-vis being helpful to one's fellow man, then I think a giant apocalyptic hurricane is going to do it. Yes. <laughs> no, I would think so. And I don't think that's a change in who he is. I think it's a reveal of who he is. Um but in the moment just I felt as the reader the same type of like shock about generosity as you know folks in that situation might feel. I thought that so was that, pretty. Is that where we is that where we leave off with Big Henry kind of saving the day? He saves the day, and they go into town proper to kind of see what has happened. Um, and you get a picture of this community where like the road has been washed away in spots. Um, the uh like just whole like the tractor trailers are like piled on one another um and there's one spot too where and this gets to uh ward's depictions of like poor communities in this area um she's seeing that she's seeing the town and, and what's left of it the gas station the yacht club and all the old white columned homes that faced the beach that made us feel small and dirty and poorer than ever when we came here with daddy have been ripped away and washed into the sea not ravaged she thinks not rubble but completely gone so there's this feeling that i don't know it's not the not the storm as justice but the storm no cuz that's not cuz that's not no justice really like the, symbolically it is it is an important reminder that that when nature decides that it's had enough like we're all the same yeah <laughs> like money doesn't help you immediately in that moment but then i guess if you i don't know if those people i don't think those people are going to be like hurt by losing their homes the way that you know the poor black community is, is no is hurt by because they just have they have recourse and other stuff to help rebuild that, that a lot of people don't have yeah and know. we and we get shots of of some of those members of those communities just being gone like actually having evacuated because they had somewhere to go um but what the book ends on is this image of a community kind of coming together big henry's family taking care of people other people in that neighborhood taking care of people and they go back and skeeta is like waiting for china to emerge from like the storm um she was lost and he doesn't know if she's out there or not so he has built this big fire back by the flooded house and is like waiting for her to come back so the book ends with them all huddling around with skeeta just waiting for her and uh i think like also aligning esh with like she's feeling like she knows what's next for her. So it ends with her saying, China, she will return standing tall and straight, the milk burned out of her. She will look down on the circle of light we have made in the pit, and she will know that I have kept watch, that I have fought. China will bark and call me sister. In the star-suffocated sky, there is a great waiting silence. She will know that I am a mother. Um, And so Esh is like, she also tells i think big henry that her baby doesn't have a father like she's just gonna care for it and that just is what it is um so in this like ravaged community people are there waiting and able to build new things i guess 
I, that's kind of it, it is a hopeful ending even as stuff has been destroyed and yeah and it's, it sounds lost. like it's it's trying for a a hopeful note even though there's gonna be a ton like it's just it's gonna be hard it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be difficult yes. um there's another thing from that uh, Paris Review interview with uh, Jesmyn Ward that I wanted to read. Um, and the and the interviewer asks asks her like about the book being political. And, oh yeah. Uh, Ward mm-hmm. says, um, after I finished my first draft of Salvage the Bones, I felt that I wasn't political enough. Um, and then she goes on. I realized that if I was going to assume the responsibility of writing about my home, I needed narrative ruthlessness. I couldn't dull the edges and fall in love with my characters and spare them. Life does not spare us. Yeah. So in in that context, like, how do you come down? Like, how do you feel about the, f- the ultimate fate of all the characters in this book? Huh. Given a- that she's kind of going for a narrative ruthlessness. Like, I think there is a version of this where you could go even like more hardcore, like optimistic and, and I don't know. Yeah. But there's also a version of it where it could go so much worse, right? Like no one in the family, uh, loses their life. Um, no one is so damaged that they will never be whole again. I, that's, that's a weird way to say it, but like each character, is at least left with a kindness or a knowledge of a kindness that they can like use to, to build back up. Right. Um, but they have all lost something. The ruthlessness angle is interesting because I think none of the characters are, are perfect people. Like they're all kind of, they all kind of fail each other in a bunch of different ways while also being there for each other when it counts. Okay. So there's like, there's, a lot of unspoken or or oblique conflict between the father and Skeeta, where like even at one point, uh, the dad asks Skeeta to like help him salvage some wood to put up around the windows, and when Skeeta's like pulling it down, he lets it fall like real dangerously close to his dad, in a way that you know he he kind of just wants his dad to feel unsafe as like. I guess recompense or payback for times that his dad's made him feel unsafe. I don't know. Um, there's simmering conflict there that never really boils over. Uh, Randall and Skeeta go back and forth, like doing good things for each other and then getting pissed at each other. Um, they all take care of junior in their own little ways, but then also are terribly inconvenienced by him. And, like Skeeta doesn't want him to play with the puppies and uh, Junior is involved at this one point where their dad gets injured in the tractor accident. Like, and they all go to bat for Esh, even though, uh, you know, she is separate from them and is, you know, causing, she's sort of causing problems between Manny and Randall. But I would also argue that those are mostly Manny caused problems. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, but the what I found really human about a book that could easily have been it leaned more into the myth and parable aspect. I think it's balanced re- rather nicely. Is that these are folks who make mistakes and folks who uh, ultimately want to do good for one another, even when they are like acting selfishly or acting impulsively. Um, 
Skeeter the most of all, because he's the one who, as like Randall and Esh are actually nailing wood over windows, he is like huddling in his kennel with his dogs sure. and, and putting them perhaps in extra danger. He at one point like spends some of the money that he was supposed to spend on canned food on extra dog food for his dog. And it's, you know, it's one of the, it's like, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> like uh, Priorities, man. Priorities. So I think when she means narrative ruthlessness, that's part of it. I think uh, the book does not have, there's not a lot of overt, uh, for lack of a better word, dialogue between like this poor black community and uh you know a more well-off white community they have the neighbors that they steal from at one point and there are some implications about how things are handled uh in the school um but it is it is more about what these characters uh what they're willing to do and kind of what they fail to do at times okay um, yeah it's a cool book it's i i wanted to make sure i read enough of the prose um because it's really stirring, and, and I think that uh, she weaves in this this Greek myth stuff pretty well. I think she also says in that interview that she was very deliberate in choosing like Medea and wanting to put classic text into this book. Because yeah. I have another, I have a quote. Yeah, do you want to hit me with that? that. Um, it infuriates me that the work of white American writers can be universal and lay claim to classic texts while black and female authors are ghettoized as other. I wanted to align Esh with that classic text with the universal figure of Medea, the antihero, to claim that tradition as part of my Western literary heritage. The stories I write are particular to my community and my people, which means the details are particular to our circumstances. But the larger story of the survivor, the savage, is essentially a universal human one. And um, so we, we've talked about this a couple times about how um, when when white men are writing something like it's it's allowed to be universal and speak to everyone. But if you're a woman who's writing or speaking or doing anything, it's always in the context of being a woman or when you're black, it's always in the context of being black. Like you're you're allowed to write about your experience, I guess. But it's it's always not I mean, not always, but it's it's, but it's often just it's read as your experience and not a human experience, you know? Yeah. And I think my experience with Salvage the Bones is that it walks the line between those two if those two were the only options which i don't think they are um it walks the line between them between them pretty well like this is very much the story of a teenage black girl in this community it is also the story about how a family survives a hurricane <laughs> uh-huh. like it is and it draws on yeah medea is really helpful in kind of bridging that to in the way that a lot of other writers lean on well-known stories or texts to kind of like build a bridge to other people's experiences um i think it does it pretty organically and it it, the other dichotomy i don't know this is only sort of related but i wanted to touch briefly on just the dog fighting element of the book okay um because it's some of the more gruesome stuff in there like there's like one big long dog fighting chapter uh about two-thirds of the way through and the violence is pretty, who boy, I don't like reading about dogs biting each other that much. <laughs> um, but what's interesting, and, and I think this book came out after like the big Michael Vick scandal, which is one of the like big last big like national news stories I can think of about dog fighting. 
um because he was he got in trouble for a whole dogfighting ring that he was participating in um michael vick a nfl quarterback if you don't know sure uh is that like as it's portrayed in this book it is not really about you know illegal gambling like it, it is alluded to but the fights you see take place in the book are really about you know status in the community uh and a reflection of the time and care you've put into this dog and i don't mean that to say like dog fighting is good i think one of the things that it that ward does pretty well is like you see all the times where skeeta is caring for his dog and like right it's 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 i don't it's not romanticized quite but no it's, it's put not. into it's put into a context outside of just pure cruelty yeah and that actually makes it tougher to watch because you're like how if you care for this animal that much which like at certain parts of the book the prose make Skeeta and China into like one character in a way like they stand together they move together um and Skeeta's love for this dog is is like unparalleled in the book um it makes it all the more painful to see it then be part of this culture of violence uh and on the one hand can you have one without the other uh but on the other hand like ugh that is such a a waste of of a life for you know for some of the dogs who would end up dying and it's right, just yeah. like it's very truthful without condoning anything which i think is always a a, a tough line to walk as well yeah. mm-hmm. um so yeah again if uh, as i said before if you're kind of sensitive to depictions of animal violence i think the book is still worth reading but just like you'll know when you're getting there and just take your time <laughs> just tread carefully yeah um so that's the book i'm i really liked it a lot i know that this is not really a review podcast but it's always just like fun to just like oh no this is a book i didn't know anything about and that and then i read it and i liked it i had a good time Mm -hmm. um i think time was had by all (laughs) yeah even oh god (laughs) jeez uh yeah folks should check out jessamine ward she's pretty cool um if you have read this book or have read any of Ward's other work and want to let us know what you think, you should send us an email to overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. I got a bunch of folks I want to thank for reaching out to us this week, including Ellen, Michael, Maria, Ricky, Melissa, Amanda, Jason, Britt, JD, Eric, Barbara, Rebecca, MK, Greg, Stephen, Brett, Graham, Caitlin, Melissa, Cheyenne, Tara, Katie, Rhea, Sophie, and many, many more. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. we got links to those social sites that Craig just mentioned. We also have links to our RSS, iTunes, and Google Play feeds. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop every Monday. Um, if you do uh, subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because it helps us rise in those rankings. And when you give us a good review, at least... It makes us feel better for a minute. And when you give us a bad review, it makes us feel bad for a lifetime. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Andrew, um, what are you reading for next week? Okay, so for next week, I'm reading Americana by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Mm-hmm. I believe I, I looked up the pronunciation, and I think that's closer than I would otherwise have gotten. <laughs> um, do you want to just run through our February schedule? Uh, yeah. Then I am reading The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. That's the and first then, book in her, what is it, the Earthsea trilogy or the Broken Earth trilogy? Broken Earth trilogy. Yeah. Earthsea is uh, Le, Le Guin. Guin. Is Le Guin. Um, yeah. And then I am reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. 
And we are doing a uh, bonus episode sometime this month, I think like mid-month, yep. on uh, The Crane's Dance by Meg Howery. Yeah. So let us know what you think about those books. If uh, if we want, if you need us to like cover a specific part of them or, or you're interested to hear about our thoughts on a particular part of them, let us know. Yeah. And um, this is, you know, this is a month of two white guys reading <laughs> books by black women. Yeah. And... Like we're inevitably going to get stuff wrong or not hit stuff as hard as we should. And we do want to, we do want to hear about that so we can continue to, to do a better job and to learn more because that's part of the reason why we, why we try and, you know, expand our, our literary horizons with, with these kinds of things. So. Hey, Andrew. What? Good show. Thanks. Good show to you too. All right. Let's watch the Super Bowl. Woo! Go, Go Eagles, everybody. <laughs> okay. Until next week, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. That one up. I got uh, so much just snot in my head. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much of it in there. You can really dip dip down into a whole new place on the register with my sick voice. Yeah, what is this Boz Skaggs thing that my you're doing? S- hey, baby, it's my sick voice. Oh. Let me breathe. Let me breathe on you, baby. Oh. <laughs>